Hello, everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Megan Pospichel, and I'm joined today by Alex Mura and Emma Metter. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We are a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone both in and out of the field of public health. Today we'll be chatting with Sam Jarvis, who is the Community Health Division Manager for Johnson County Public Health. In this role, Sam coordinates with different healthcare providers, hospitals, and emergency service agencies to prepare for the unexpected. He earned his MS in public health at Western Illinois University, and today he's here with us to discuss the current distribution plans for the COVID-19 vaccines in Johnson County, Iowa. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me. To start us off, could you tell us about how you ended up in public health and what your role is at Johnson County Public Health? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, long story short, it was by complete accident. Uh, originally, uh, an undergrad was speaking pre-med, um, had a really amazing opportunity to be an EMT for a short while, uh, and realized that I did not want to touch patients anymore. Uh, and so public health book, uh, and so it made uh, a lot of sense. Initially in grad school, kind of health ed, uh, communication, uh, kind of coursework, but then was able to really jump into the field of emergency management. Uh, and really enjoyed that. And so one of my first jobs in public health was emergency preparedness. It's really paid off because it's uh, an emerging field. Uh, it's really necessary because we continue to see disasters, disease outbreaks, and other things happen. Uh, it seems like more frequently, uh, which is kind of unfortunate, but um, you know, business is booming, I guess you could say. How I came to Johnson County Public Health, uh, my spouse is a resident at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. And so actually today is match day. Uh, and so I know a lot of um, med students are celebrating today. They found out where they're going. And so this time, three years ago, uh, my spouse and I were celebrating that and found out that we're coming to the University of Iowa. Really exciting uh, and really happy and feel very fortunate to be been able to be hired by Johnson County Public Health. When I first started here, I was their uh, emergency preparedness planner. And so I was able to meet a lot of our partners that we're working with right now for COVID vaccine uh, disease investigations, but also vaccine planning. So right time, right place, or maybe wrong time, wrong place, uh, however you want to look at it, but I, I try to be optimistic about it. And going off your role with emergency preparedness and response, what has it been like working in public health, especially overseeing the community health division in the past year? It's been phenomenal, uh, despite the fact that it's pandemic. Uh, I think uh, the silver lining is the fact that Johnson County, our community here, has a lot of amazing partners, a lot of persons who are willing to help out and collaborate. And so despite uh, pandemic-sized problems, we create pandemic-sized solutions. Uh, and so really been, uh, having been able to meet so many partners, even individuals um, throughout the entire pandemic, a lot of the partners are, are, are agencies that we work with normally throughout other programs, whether it's with our health educators or disease investigators or folks um, in our clinical services division, or even environmental health. It's just a lot of meeting folks and working together. So it's been really wonderful uh, to have that support because uh, we know that it's not the case in other uh, communities. We, we often hear stories of other counties in Iowa and across the nation, other, other states and, and things. And we know others uh, don't get as much support as we do here in Johnson County. Yeah, definitely. That's super awesome that we have like a very different kind of population than other places without large hospitals. 
But yeah, okay. So how do public health or like emergency planners decide who gets the vaccine first? Uh, that's a great question. So that's, that's like the toughest question uh, uh, overall, right? Uh, especially when vaccine is so scarce. Uh, but we're pretty fortunate. Uh, certainly there's uh, the ACIP or the Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices that did a lot of heavy lifting along with a lot of other um, bioethicists. And they really looked at um, what would be uh, the most benefit and most fair, most equitable way. And they really created a framework. There's actually a 230-page document that one can read through and really walks through their thought process. Uh, I attempted to do so. Uh, I got fairly, um, you know, uh, far through it. Uh, but then shortly after, the CDC produced an MMWR that was five pages. And that's just a lot more appealing right now, uh, given the fact that things move quickly and, and time is uh, of the essence. So that really set a great framework for states to go off of and really look at a framework that could be, we'll say, standardized across the nation. Most states, uh, like Iowa, uh, stood up a Infectious Disease Advisory Council. Uh, and so ours uh, in the state of Iowa then took those recommendations and apply them to the state. And so that really helped us uh, answer the toughest question of who gets vaccinated first. For the most part, they're substantially similar um, to other states. Uh, we saw healthcare workers and long-term care staff of residents get vaccinated first. And that makes sense. Our healthcare system, uh, we saw throughout here and other places, surges in cases. Uh, lots of patients directly COVID-related, um, those who are in the ICU, certainly ventilators, uh, things like that, that, that we saw in the news, um, not just here, but uh, nationwide, uh, and then certainly saw a lot of morbidity and mortality in long-term care facilities, specifically because they're skilled nursing facilities where uh, folks are, are a bit more fragile, but they also have a lot of underlying conditions because of their age uh, and other things. So um, after that, we, we began to see some deviation that other states were doing. Um, some went through and they had critical infrastructure uh, and they listed out specific occupations. Others did not go as far. So um, really we took those uh, and implemented that here in Johnson County as best we could. There were those recommendations and really the shortage order, uh, which is signed into law uh, where we, we follow those through um, as best as possible. It's really interesting to hear about like how we can take these like national plans and then trying to adapt them to our state or even our county level. So we're wondering if there's any like special demographic characteristics of Johnson County that, you know, you guys had to account for when trying to figure out the distribution plans. Like example is that we have a pretty high healthcare population with UIHC being here. So um, what made it unique in that way? Uh, that's a great example. So initially on, really, uh, when we think of just phase 1A, we have a huge healthcare population. I think the second largest uh, to Polk, which makes sense because they're the largest county. Um, but we have a, a barely population-dense healthcare workforce here because of uh, places like UIHC, the VA, and Mercy. But there's so many other healthcare providers here too. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of other private practices and things. And so as we were looking at that and really trying to stay true to uh, as strictly as possible to healthcare workers, we knew that we had a, uh, we'll say for lack of a better term, a larger denominator than other counties. And one of the other things that was uh, really unique about Johnson County uh, was the fact that you can look at license uh, of healthcare workers, and that's typically related to their place of residence. 
So how many folks live in other counties around Johnson County, but they work here? And so if you looked at that solely, you would see larger healthcare populations in different counties than Johnson County. So that was a, a discrepancy that uh, staff here noted pretty quickly. Uh, and we even touched base with other health departments and they noted that as well. And so um, we certainly sent those concerns or other kind of things that we were seeing to the state and they noted that and, and recognized that there's sort of a commuter effect. So that was one thing that we saw uh, early on. Um, the other portion is certainly looking at different counties um, here in Johnson County and older adults uh, and just recognizing a larger population. We have more uh, folks in those categories, whether it's by age or, or anything else. So um, we continue to kind of see different unique things as time goes on as well, too. So going off of that, what kind of data, if any, is Johnson County collecting regarding this new vaccine? In terms of uh, the vaccine and its effects, we're not really looking at that, but certainly we're keeping track of, um, you know, the, more of the, the logistics of us uh, allocating and, and things like that. We certainly rely on our, our state and federal partners to really um, help us wade through the waters of how um, effective it is. Uh, certainly, I think many have seen the news with the CDC noting that uh, if you've been fully vaccinated, so two weeks post um either your second dose or single dose, if it's uh, Johnson & Johnson, what you're able to do. And many folks are pretty pretty excited about that because that means uh, getting uh, a little bit closer with friends and family uh, and not have to wear a mask. But really what we're looking at, we've done, uh, we're more on the back end of things. So a lot of the logistics and allocation, it's a numbers game. It's a lot of communicating with partners and trying to sub-prioritize uh, persons in those tiered occupations. And so we're having a lot of conversations with, with employers to really line up the exact amount of doses for the persons that we've really um, deemed um, eligible uh, by the shortage order and then certainly at, at high risk. So we're pretty fortunate that we've actually really not given a vaccination ourselves on site, but we've really coordinated with a lot of our partners. So that's been a huge benefit as well, too. Cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. So our next question is, what are some unforeseen challenges that Johnson County has run into with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine? Uh, some of the unforeseen things are, are really just how quickly and rapidly information changes. Um, again, we've seen a variety of the eligibility changes pretty quickly. Um, those are things that um, even the slightest bit of change really does affect our thinking. And a good example is uh, before we approached phase 1B, initially on it was 75 and older. And so we had rough estimates of how many folks that might be. Uh, and so really, when we think about our, our distribution plan, we were trying to think of ways that we could make sites more accessible and a, a lot easier for those who are 75 and older. Um, but then uh, the change with adding 65 and older really, uh, from what we know, doubled the demand across the state, uh, but did not increase the supply at all. So as you can imagine, that posed a lot of different um, issues. And really, we had to think of different ways to um, be able to meet that set population without wanting to have long lines. This was also really early on February, so we were dealing with inclement weather. Uh, so we don't want folks waiting outside. It's primarily older adults. We, there's icy weather uh, and things like that. So really, uh, even the slightest thing uh, can really change a lot of our thinking. Uh, in terms of other unforeseen things, really, it relates back to supply. Uh, again, it doesn't sound as exciting, but when we talk about the logistics of it, it really, that's um, a key piece that we focus on. So Pfizer comes into, uh, they call them flats. Of, of, originally it was 975, 
then um, due to some really clever uh, pharmacists, they recognize that if you use certain needles, uh, they're, they're lower volume uh, in the needle. And so you're able to get a six dose. And so now it's technically 1170. Uh, and then Moderna comes in boxes of 100. And so we're really trying to do our best to line that up and not break those up because uh, the other part of this really complex logistical kind of puzzle is we have to also remember where we allocated doses for those second doses. Uh, and so that's one of the, the benefits the State Health Department has helped us with is ensuring that anyone who gets vaccinated with their first dose, so long as we uh, kind of follow our recipe of where we've been, uh, we can ensure folks that they're getting their second doses, which is pretty important. That's how the study was completed. That's how uh, we can really provide the most uh, benefit out of vaccination. Going off of this like recurring theme of the complexities of the logistics of um, rollout of the vaccine and even like the constant changing information, I think a lot of Iowans and even just people around the country are struggling to figure out how do they even schedule a vaccine appointment? So is there some type of centralized vaccine appointment scheduling tool that individuals can access? And what are some ways that Johnson County is trying to make sure that this information is disseminated in a meaningful and accessible format? That's a great question. Originally, when we started this out, uh, we wanted to avoid having one centralized list. We saw a lot of complaints from other states. And, uh, you know, I think in the hindsight is 2020. Um, with, if you had a list, people didn't like it. If you don't have a list, people don't like that either. So you, you always kind of hear those comparisons. But um, the reason why we chose not to have one centralized sign-up list is because, you know, one, we'd be handling a lot of information. And two, um, you know, keeping that list up to date uh, would have been very burdensome. And so what we've asked our partners to do um, kind of thinking of how we allocate in our, our distribution plan. Uh, we've asked our hospital partners to help us with individuals and really focus on those who are older. Uh, and we've asked them to really proactively call folks instead of just solely relying on online signatures. And so they really stepped up uh, and they've asked, they've pulled staff from their regular job duties to do that for us. Um, so we're really grateful to UHC and Mercy for doing that. I mean, they could have said no and said, you know, we don't have time. Uh, people can just get it how they can, but they, they stepped up and they're, they're doing that. Other ways that, that we know, at least right now, uh, thinking back with our older adult population, you know, when we're planning kind of other offsite clinics or different clinics for uh, across the county, uh, we've had volunteers step up and they say, we'll help call folks. We work with these populations that don't have internet access or, or would have difficulty navigating uh, an online um, scheduler. Uh, they've called them and they've, they've assisted them to sign up and make sure that they can get an appointment uh, before we announce the, the clinic publicly. Uh, so really it's a strategy to kind of front load that um, schedule to get those folks in first. So um, we've seen a lot of benefit to that. Um, and then uh, we've got a lot of other irons in the fire right now working with how we can address homebound folks, certainly others who are non-English speaking, those who are working during the day, they don't have time to take out work or they, they, they are, aren't afforded the ability to take sick time. Um, because it's not offered to them to get a, a, an appointment during the day. So it's always a, the battle and issue with access, but um, now it's fed up so much quickly, you know, so much uh, more because uh, supply. We're really trying to fit in as many folks as possible um, every week we get allocation. So a question I have been hearing a lot of students ask is, when can I get the vaccine or when do you think I'll be able to get the vaccine? What can you tell us about 
how the vaccine rollout might look for us UI students. Yeah. So, you know, if you would have asked that a month ago or even at the beginning, uh, I would have said um, maybe in the summer, um, because even for ourselves, we thought uh, we, we might not get vaccinated, um, you know, thinking that those 65 and older would take quite a, quite a while, especially knowing that the, the supply could be very limited. Um, but from what we're told, um, the state had noted that if supply increases dramatically and they're projecting by April 5th, um, every Iowan I would be eligible. And so it really it's based off of, uh, of age, uh, 16 years and older for Pfizer, uh, 18 years and older for Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. So it could be sooner than what many people think about. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. Um, and this is kind of leading into our next question, how vaccine availability has occurred, but have you like observed more hesitancy from the general public in opting to receive this vaccine? And do you think that's why like people have more people have become eligible so soon? Uh, you know, that's, that's a good question. So uh, we believe that that might be the case with, with opening up eligibility. Initially on, obviously, December, January, demand was so high. Um, we, we only heard from people who wanted to get vaccinated because there was hardly any vaccine coming in. Um, and so I think as, as progress and, and time goes on, we'll take care of those folks, right? The high demand, the early adopters, people who got vaccinated now, they'll be vaccinated. They'll be we'll say for lack of a better term, out of the way. And then we'll start to really see the portion of the, the population that says, well, I'm not really sure. Or, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll wait or like, I'm not getting it. Uh, and so then we, we can really start to address that. And so um, this first part of, of the vaccine campaign is getting the folks who want it. The, the next part, we'll be trying to, to get folks who don't want it to get vaccinated. So um, we're starting to hear a bit more about hesitancy and some concerns doing our best to try to address those misinformation and just kind of flat out wrong information. You know, it's not a microchip or things like that. So I think as time goes on, we'll, we'll have another kind of uh, pandemic sized problem to, to address. And that'll be hesitancy because really the goal is to get everyone vaccinated. We know that there's a handful of folks that uh, will definitely not do it at all. And there's some that uh, if they had a little bit more information, we can get them there. Uh, that'll be our next kind of um, battle. Yeah, I feel like that's always part of the public health battle is like educating people and making sure that you're not just like increasing disparity by educating, you know, only people that you can reach or just, yeah, it's definitely an ongoing public health challenge. Um, but okay, our last question for you is what is one thing you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? And it doesn't have to be with regards to COVID-19. I was going to say it was in regards to COVID-19, so many things, uh, really just, again, hindsight, things uh, happen and, and change so quickly. You know, really, we, we just have to pivot and be pretty nimble. But I think the one that probably sticks out uh, the most, and this was uh, pretty much everyone in public health, was, it was masks. For the longest time, uh, there was just a lot of confusion about, uh, you know, it was, you don't need to wear a mask or you know, don't wear medical masks because save that for hospital surges. And then April comes along and then it's like, nope, nope, every, everyone needs to wear a mask all the time um, and everything. And so really that was um, uh, a huge lesson learned, uh, especially how to communicate that change too. Uh, it changed so quickly. And, and there's certainly a lot of researchers and other folks that were in other countries that, that were doing that already. And they're probably looking over here and 
thinking, why, why are you not doing the thing that you need to do right now? And so um, that's probably the one that sticks out uh, the most. Cool. Okay. Well, I think that that's all we have for you, Alex and Emma. Do you have anything to add? Just thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and answer these questions. I think everything that Johnson County Public Health and just the field of public health in general is doing is just amazing and your work does not go unappreciated. So just thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it and appreciate you guys reaching out to us. Again, it's uh, wonderful to, to be on Team Public Health uh, during a pandemic. Um, it's, it's really you know, we're grateful for our partnerships. We're grateful to, to be able to have the opportunity to serve. But uh, I think for the most part, it's just been, uh, you know, in terms of a, as a profession to be really noticed, seen, even scrutinized. Uh, people know uh, more about public health than they ever had before. So uh, it's been exciting to be a part of all of this. For sure. All right. Well, thanks again um, for taking the time to come and talk with us. We really appreciate it. That's it for our episode this week. Again, thank you to Sam Jarvis. This episode was hosted and written by Megan Papashell, Alex Murrah, and Emma Metter. Edited and produced by Alexis Clark. You can find out more about the Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-graduateambassador at uiowa.edu. From the Front Row is sponsored by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thanks and keep healthy.